Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert, a truly special individual and a special guest today, Mr. Frank Grunwald, who is a child living in Czechoslovakia, was deported to the ghetto and later sent with his family to the Auschwitz concentration camp, a special man with an incredible story. Welcome to Seldom Said, Frank. Thank you. Can we start with a little bit of personal background? Can you embellish more or less what I just said in the introduction? Sure. You want, you want to start from now or you want me to start earlier uh, from my childhood? If you would not mind, start from inception, from your childhood. Uh, okay, so uh, I grew up in uh, in Czechoslovakia, what now is the Czech Republic, um, and uh, most of my early years uh, and my family were spent in Prague, which of course was the capital of uh, Czechoslovakia. And uh, in nineteen, uh, in the spring of nineteen thirty nine. The um, uh, the German forces, the Nazi army, came and uh, took the country over um, in uh, in March of 1939. And uh, uh, my father was a physician, and we lived. Um, I had an older brother, four years older. I was about six six and a half years old then, and um, we uh, li- we lived very comfortably in an apartment uh, in the center of Prague. And uh, my dad was practicing medicine, and uh, we were heavily into art and music and uh, and the sciences. And uh, uh, of course, when the German army took over, uh, our lives uh, changed instantly uh, with a lot of anti-Semitic propaganda and uh, uh, a lot of restrictions that were put on 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 all the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, soon after that, we were. Um, uh, my dad was restricted from practicing medicine. Uh, he had to work in a hospital. He could not work alone as a as a physician. And um, w- my brother and I were uh, kicked out of uh, public schools because Jews were not allowed to go to public schools. So uh, I was just starting second grade, and I was. Uh, I was basically evicted from the school, and so was my brother, who was in uh, who was in sixth grade. Uh, so our edu- education, formal education, pretty much stopped uh, at that point. And uh, then um, uh, we were evicted from our apartment about uh, six months or eight months after the Nazis took the country over, and we had to move to a smaller apartment. We lost lost all of our belongings. Uh, including furniture and carpeting and uh, uh, the, the the baby grand piano and everything basically had to be left behind, except for a few suitcases uh, with our personal belongings that we took to the smaller apartment that we shared with uh, close relatives of ours in Prague. And then in 1942, in the summer of 42, we were um, uh, selected to be transported to a local ghetto about an hour and a half or so from Prague called, uh, in Czech, it was called Terezin. It was a small town that was converted into a ghetto. Uh, ghetto meaning it had a, uh, the town had a wall around it. Uh, the town was built... Uh, in the 1800s or late 1700s with a defensive wall around it and it was an ideal place to uh, to put uh, Jewish families into and to isolate them from the rest of the Czech population. So um, the Germans uh, kicked out all the people that lived there, all the Czech families that lived there originally and they basically emptied the town and made room for for the Jewish families that they transported in from mostly from Czechoslovakia and a few from Germany and Austria, but but probably 98% uh, from Czechoslovakia. And this was a staging uh, place 
for families then to be later shipped to the various concentration camps and extermination, extermination camps, uh, mostly in Poland. Uh, so we ended up in uh, in Terezin, and all in a, what the Germans call Terezienstadt, and we were there uh, under some very horrendous uh, conditions with very little food, very little medical care, uh, no possibility to purchase anything or to get to get new clothing or to buy fresh fruit or fresh vegetables anywhere. We were on a basically an army kitchen. And we were separated uh, from our parents, so the boys were separated from the girls, and uh, all the children were separated from their parents, and the parents were separated from each other, which meant that the women and men were separated from each other, and they had separate quarters. Uh, I soon found out that Theresienstadt was a staging uh, ghetto, a staging place for shipping, shipping families uh, out to be um, exterminated. And um, uh, at that point, of course, I was only about 11 years old, and I didn't, I don't think I saw the whole picture yet, but I knew that this was a staging uh, ghetto and that people were being shipped out. And uh, in 19, in the, um, in December of 1943, my family, meaning my mother, father, and my brother, um, were all shipped to uh, the uh, Auschwitz concentration camp. This was referred to the referred to as the December transport. We were uh, among the two transports, uh, early December transports, uh, of roughly five thousand, uh, of roughly twenty five hundred prisoners each. Uh, for a total of roughly 5,000 people that were transported in two trains sequentially um, at the beginning of December. And um, we arrived in Auschwitz um, uh, and uh, we were put into a what was referred to as a Czech family camp. This was a very interesting uh, scenario because it was the first time in the history of any camp, particularly Auschwitz, that such a thing was ever constructed uh, and assembled. Uh, the Czech, Czech family camp was a camp um, with no one but Czech Jewish uh, families. And we had, uh, my, we had grandparents, parents and children all uh, in this one camp referred to as the Czech family camp. It was done for, uh, what we found out after the war, that this was done for several interesting reasons. Number one, uh, apparently there were leaks coming from various camps, including Auschwitz. Uh, leaks that came out into the general, to the general population that were, uh, that stated that Jews were being killed by the thousands in gas chambers. And when these leaks came out, uh, the Nazi um, uh, people, the Nazi uh, management in um, in Berlin, got panicky and decided that one way to to neutralize these leaks is to put together an artificial uh, family camp, Jewish family camp in Auschwitz, and then um, uh, to have that uh, uh, put together, have families live together and keep him alive. And also, uh, many of these uh, prisoners had to send postcards to various uh, locations, Terezin, as well as their uh, friends, non-Jewish friends, in various parts of Europe, particularly Czechoslovakia. These, po uh, these postcards were uh, pretty much controlled and you were pretty much told what you were supposed to put down, what you were supposed to write down. And uh, the essence of the postcards was to tell people, uh, falsely of course, that everybody's okay, that we are in a labor camp, uh, that uh, we are all doing well, and so on and so forth. Very short, uh, very short amount of script, but very direct and very positive in every way. 
there was uh, one way to neutralize some of the uh, some of the rumors that Jews were being killed by the by the hundreds of thousands. The other concern that the SS apparently had was inspections conducted by um, the International Red Cross out of Geneva, Switzerland. And they were concerned that perhaps, and I know this concern was probably not valid, but they, the International Red Cross came into Terezin, uh, the, uh, the ghetto of Terezin, in the Czech Republic, and they inspected the ghetto. Uh, prior to the inspection, however, the Germans made sure that everything looked uh, rosy and nice in Terezin, and they made it, uh, they completely false, falsified the place by putting food in the stores and putting clothing in the stores and, and uh, putting coffee in the various restaurants and so forth. So they completely falsified the, the appearance of the Terezin ghetto uh, for the uh, inspection of the International Red Cross. When the International Red Cross came through, uh, I think that was early 1944 or late 43, actually it was early 44, early to mid 44. When they came through and were satisfied with the inspection, uh, they later told uh, the headquarters in Berlin, the SS headquarters, that there are no further uh, inspections uh, planned uh, for any of the camps. And that, of course, gave, um, gave the Germans a free hand to start liquidating uh, more of the people, particularly the people in the artificially constructed uh, Czech family camp in Auschwitz. So we were in Auschwitz for, uh, let's see, till July of, uh, of 1944, from December of 43 to, to July of 44. And already in March of 44, after apparently the Germans were told that everything was okay and that the Red Cross was not planning any uh, further visits. Um, in March of 44, the 5,000 um, people that came from uh, Terezin, the first transport of 5,000 that came to Terezin in September were guests, most of them were guests that were still alive. And then July, in July, which was roughly four months later, uh, our turn came uh, to be selected for either to be alive, stay alive, or uh, to be gassed. Uh, the people that uh, typically would, would be kept alive would be the ones that were reserved for labor purposes. They could either work in, uh, in, in, in labor camps in Germany or they could work uh, in some of the factories surrounding the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. There were several factories, large, uh, both munition and chemical factories that they that the Germans uh, set up around the camp, uh, and many of the prisoners in Birkenau, Auschwitz, were working in those factories. So um, uh, when we uh, came up for the selection, and selection meant you were selected either to work or to die, um, my brother and I were um, um, basically uh, selected to be killed. We realized that we were we soon realized that we were on death row as we went through the through the uh, in front of Dr. Mengele, who was one of the uh, uh, chief uh, medical officers responsible for the Czech family camp. And we were selected. Uh, I was selected apparently because of my age, and my brother was selected to die because he had a limp. He was born with a um, with a. Um, uh, deficient or uh, uh, an inefficient structure in his left leg. His left leg was weaker than his right and his left leg. He was limping. And then when Dr. Mengele saw him limping, he was, my dad, my father, my uh, brother was 16 years old. And when he saw him limping, he immediately uh, directed him to the left of the table, which was the, uh, which was the group that was going to be gassed. And, uh, and he saw that I was uh, uh, typically only about 12 or 12 and, a, uh, 12 and a half years old. He also sent me to the left of the table. 
However, what saved me was that uh, soon after this selection was accomplished uh, or completed, a prisoner that knew me, a German prisoner, not a Jewish prisoner, but a German prisoner that knew me, and he was in charge of all the prisoners in the Czech family camp, and I, I worked with him as his uh, assistant or as his uh, runner. I was running messages for him. He knew me, and he when he saw me on death row, he uh, came from out from the crowd and walked up to me very quickly and moved me to a group of older children that he knew were going to be saved uh, for labor purpose, purposes. So I was saved, and, and basically at this point, uh, when he did this, uh, his name was Willy Brachman. When he saved my life by moving me to this older group of kids, I realized, of course, that my brother was in trouble. And uh, it was at that point that I realized that my brother was in big trouble, that those kids were probably going to be gassed and I was going to survive. At this point, this during the selection or after the selection process, my mother, who found out that uh, my brother was um, uh, in trouble and on death row, she elected to stay with him, and uh, and they were both gassed four days later on uh, on July 11th, uh, 1944. I was moved with approximately 98 or 97 other boys, 14 year old, 14 and 15 year old boys. I was moved to a men's camp, which was nearby, and I stayed there till January of 1945, at which time uh, Auschwitz was being evacuated, and we were, I was shipped, I was put on a death march first, which I barely survived, and then I was shipped uh, by train to, uh, to the, to the uh, concentration camp of Mauthausen in Austria. Uh, my father also survived because he was a medical doctor and uh, during the selection uh, Mengele instructed my father to be moved to the nearby medical camp. Uh, it was a medical clinic camp and they kept a lot of the doctors alive because uh, they felt that the doctor could be uh, functional in uh, helping uh, prisoners uh, who maybe got injured. Uh, and were still capable of doing labor, uh, uh, hand labor in the nearby factories. So the doctors were being treated uh, pretty um, special, as, as being special, especially important. And, and uh, the, at, this, as this, at this point of the war, the, uh, the Germans or the Nazis uh, kept, a, kept many of the doctors alive. And my father was uh, put into this medical camp in Auschwitz. And from there, in October of 1944, he was uh, transported to Germany, where he spent uh, the rest of the, most of the war uh, in two other German camps before he was liberated by the American army. Uh, I was liberated uh, in Austria by the American army in, uh, on the 4th of uh, May. 1945 in a small uh, camp uh, called uh, Gunskirchen in Austria. The camp was very dangerous. It was uh, it was a very bad place to be. It had uh, we had no food or water, and I think we were only there for a week. But if we would have been there for another two or three days, we would have probably all died because we had no food or water. Frank. So I, I was liberated in uh, on the fourth of um, May. Of 1944, and then we were, my dad and I were reunited about six weeks later. Frank, after that. if I may, and I must apologize for the interruption, this is a harrowing but arresting story. I've known many survivors. They speak as you do, with a calmness, almost with a poetic lyricism. There is little passion little hatred. It's an intellectual rationalization. Where do you find that, Frank? Well, I, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, uh, 
quite relaxed about uh, the the historical um, a aspect of it all. Um, I have made um, you know many presentations. I have I have thought about it obviously uh, for hours and hours about what happened to my family and my brother and my mother and you know I have over the years I have um, uh, if there is such a thing as coming to terms with it. Uh, I have accepted what happened, and I have uh, I have uh, I look at it more as a terrible historical occurrence that has a that 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 left uh, that left all of humanity with a huge black eye. Uh, so I blame uh, I blame the human. I guess I I blame the human mind. The uh, the weakness and the the irresponsibility of of and of the human brain for for what happened during the Holocaust and you know I realized that it that similar occurrences are still happening today maybe on a smaller scale but um, the fact that the human brain is imperfect from a from a social standpoint is uh, is proven by the fact that uh, all these 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 sort of uh, genocides and killings uh, continue to happen uh, throughout the history of humanity, and I have come uh, to terms with it. It's an incredible statement. It's testament to your own personal humanity. I would wonder: Do you feel that the world was at fault for what occurred? I had uh, purchased a book for the child of a survivor called Children of Theresienstadt, which you might have heard of, probably have. It's an incredibly poignant book, these beautiful artistic pieces done by children who were held in this allegedly model camp. People knew. The Red Cross had to know. Certainly the Eighth Air Force flying overhead had to know. The Russians had to know. Is there blame to go around Uh, it's, it's hard to know how many people knew, and uh, even if they did know towards, I know they did know uh, the governments, um, the American government knew towards the end, but unfortunately it was late. It was, it was in, it was in the summer of 44. That um, that many of the governments were told uh, and were given a report. Um, well, the first reports came from Verba, VRBA, who was an SKP and who was from Slovakia, escaped to Slovakia by foot with a friend of his, and then put out the Verba report. And I think they knew what was going on, but it was. Uh, Bombing Auschwitz was was considered, I think, by the American uh, armed forces. But uh, at the headquarters, it was decided. I'm told it was decided that it would have been too dangerous to to bomb the the crematoria and the gas chambers uh, because of the uh, possibility of injuries to to many of the prisoners and so forth and. The other thing that I heard was that, um, and I don't know how true this is, but that they had other priorities at that time, that um, they could not focus on on bombing the concentration camps, that they had other priorities, uh, other critical targets that they felt they had to take care of first. I do remember as a child speaking to a relative whose life was dissipating, slipping away. And even in my childish mind, our eyes locked, and I understood what he was thinking, and he understood that I understood what he was thinking. Is there a moment where you, in a sense, sensed from your parents that they realized that Nazism was real? It wasn't an abstract kind of madness 
this inane soul in Berlin who is spouting nonsense was to be taken seriously? Was there such a moment? Uh, well, again, I was young when this was going on. I was 10 and 11 years, you know, eight, nine years old when this was going on. And um, what I remember, unfortunately, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know which way, which is the right way. But at, at the age that I was at that time when, when Hitler was, uh, was threatening the Jews and so forth, uh, that was happening in 1933, 34, 35, 36. I was only four or five years old at that time. And, uh, and then later when, when the Nazi armies came into Prague, I was about six and a half. And uh, my parents pretty much kept political discussions away from us. Uh, I was six or seven years old and my brother was four years older so he was about 11 uh, 10 11 and uh, my parents would never speak uh, in a in any threatening way about the political situation in any negative way so we really i really don't have a good picture or good feel of how they felt but i think I, you, your question is well taken i think that they probably knew that this was not an abstract type of hatred, that this was real, because they must have had reports from Berlin in 1933 during the destruction of the synagogues in Berlin, hundreds of synagogues and, and storefronts being broken and Kristallnacht, I believe it was in April of 1933. They must have heard about all this and when they heard about uh, this happening in Berlin, which was only three and a half hours away from Prague by car, um, they must have known that this was nothing abstract, that this was real. This was really happening already. And then came the, then came the Nuremberg Laws shortly after, in 1935. And these were pretty rigid anti-Semitic laws, obviously. And so my parents, I'm sure, knew about all this, and I think they took it very seriously. I didn't think they thought that this was just an abstract type of a philosophy. If you would not mind, would you share memories of your brother with the listening audience? It would be nice to grant him a measure of immortality. Uh, my brother was very uh, intelligent, uh, very uh, talented. I was, of course, he was four years older, so I was always envious of his uh, uh, mental capacity. He was a straight A student. Uh, he was a great pianist. He played the piano really well. We were heavily into music uh, all through that period, pre-war period. And... Uh, he was truly a magnificent, uh, had a magnificent, magnificent mind, and um, a very gentle person, and and uh, very talented. And he and I uh, got along really well. He, we used to sing uh, during our uh, short time in Auschwitz with him. And when we first got into Auschwitz, arrived in Auschwitz, uh, we were in love with American. Uh, jazz music, jazz songs. And we were both um, very interested in music, obviously. And uh, we would be humming and singing American songs in Auschwitz, such as, uh, such as uh, Stormy Weather and, uh, and uh, other uh, standards, early American standards that were lit written in the 1920s um, uh, and the 1930s pieces like Sweet Lorraine. Uh, I still play these on the accordion. I, I, play, I play the piano accordion. I play a lot of American jazz on the, on, the, on the piano accordion. And I still remember these songs and singing them and humming them with my brother in Auschwitz. He was a wonderful person. There was, in point of fact, actually an orchestra at Auschwitz. Did you hear it? Yes, I heard it very often. It would carry, the music would carry for, for a mile or more. 
and actually there were two orchestras in Auschwitz. There was a there was a female orchestra, all women's, that was uh, assembled in the that was put together by the Germans under the German um, control, obviously. And it was uh, put together. I forgot exactly the date when it was done. Probably sometimes in '43. It was in the women's uh, section of the camp, in the women's camp. Then there was another male orchestra also. And these orchestras were, uh, were designed to be used primarily for prisoners coming, going out of the gate uh, into the nearby factories uh, to perform labor in the morning and then the orchestra played again at the gate w uh, when the returning prisoners were coming back into the camp. Uh, they were also used for um, various uh, special occasions when we had visitors from Berlin, as an example, um, when we had people such as Himmler, uh, the head of SS, a common inspector camp, uh, and we had uh, high level of SS dignitaries coming in, they uh, put the orchestra into action again to give the camp a positive, uh, happy, if there, if there can be such a thing as a happy atmosphere in something that's an extermination camp, obviously, where uh, between five and 6,000 people are killed every day. So, uh, yeah, these things, these orchestra were used for, obviously, for propaganda reasons, uh, giving, giving the place, uh, trying to create a happy atmosphere, both for the prisoners as well as for the dignitaries that might come in once in a while to visit. Your childhood seems like something that Dante would have entertained can you describe a typical day as you remember it at the camp? My childhood, uh, I, uh, I have a saying that I came up with uh, because I'm so heavily into art and music. Um, the saying that I came up with was, uh, uh, art can be a dream, life can be a nightmare. Uh, because I have uh, spent a lot of time uh, uh, submerging myself in music, particularly American, uh, a lot of American music. And uh, for me, that's always been an escape. It's been an escape, a little bit of an escape in Auschwitz, but it became more of an escape after the war. And uh, I've also um, done quite a bit of art, um, mostly sculpture. That became uh, sort of a dream for me as well. Uh, uh, my typical day in, in Auschwitz, um, upon arrival, it was, it was a, really a shocking experience the first few days because we were immediately put on a starvation diet. And so my initial experience was one of being cold and being extremely hungry for many, many days and weeks. Uh, eventually, I think your stomach shrinks and you begin to shrink and you get you get adjusted to uh, eating very little. But we were we were put on a approximately a 800, 850 or eight hundred calorie diet per day, uh, and everybody knows that two thousand or twenty two hundred calories might be a minimum. So we were at uh, at, a, at a at a starvation level. At, at, at under a thousand calories. And um, so I think the hunger was the, the worst experience. And then the, the general atmosphere and the living conditions were terrible, obviously. We were in dirty bunks without any pillows or without any mattresses. And we had uh, uh, very little clothing. We had no socks. We had just wooden uh, shoes. Uh, and uh, and cotton uniforms. This was in January, December slash January of 1944-45. Uh, uh, so we were always freezing and we were always hungry. 
and then, of course, when I found out that this was an extermination camp, which only took me two or three weeks to find out, this, be this also became a horrifying experience, a horrifying thought that uh, we had literally people being killed uh, daily in the thousands. And uh, uh, I was lucky because after about a week or two in Auschwitz, I was able to make a connection uh, through a uh, artist, through, a, through Dina Gottlieb, who was an artist. Uh, I befriended her shortly upon arrival in Auschwitz, and she was a prisoner as well. I met her accidentally and became very friendly with her because I was curious about her artistic uh, activities. She was painting portraits of gypsies that Mengele asked her to do. And when we met, she sh shortly after we met, she introduced me to her boyfriend, whose name was Willy Brachman. And he was the couple or the head of the Czech family camp. He was a prisoner, a, a German prisoner, he was not Jewish, and he was in charge of the Czech family camp, which was of course all Jewish. And the Germans made him in charge because that way they could, they could deal with a German uh, and, and an Aryan, not a, not a Jew. And uh, I worked, uh, Dina introduced me to him, and I worked for Willie as his, uh, as his assistant, as his runner, uh, I was running messages for him. So I was his messenger. And he's the one that saved me eventually when I was on death row and moved me into the older uh, boy, uh, group of boys. There is really a, an interesting representation always made by oppressed peoples Frank, they'll often talk about American music, that they think of American music. I, I was just thinking as you spoke those incredible words, Django Reinhardt, a guitar player, a German yes. youth. One of my favorite jazz, uh, jazz groups was the Django Reinhardt group. Incredible. What is it about the music? Is it because it's improvisational and free, and jazz is liberating. What yeah, is it's wonderful. American music, um, that particular music, particularly the jazz, uh, many, much of it was uh, obviously based on improvisation. And when my brother and I were singing um, and humming um, jazz songs in Auschwitz, we would improvise, and we would um, we would um, develop melodies that were related to the to the basic melodies, but they were they were they were um, uh, another extension of the of the basic melody. So they were we were innovating uh, and developing um, uh, variations on that basic theme, and uh, it was very interesting because when you do that, your mind becomes totally focused on the music and not on the people that are dying right practically next to you or that are starving or that you are starving. So you focus, uh, your brain, a different part of your brain starts working and the part of the brain that tells you that you're hungry or that tells you that you might, you might die two weeks from now that part of brain is not engaged. So it's really interesting. Music it, it does wonders, I think, for people. At least for me it did. And it still does. Is there a piece on piano or accordion that upon getting up at 2.30 in the morning, you can go right back to it and it just fills you? Well, there are, there are hundreds of pieces that I do, uh, jazz pieces that I do on the, on the accordion that uh, that transport me to a whole different uh, place. Uh, some of them obviously are very sentimental. Uh, some of them are very sad. They are uh, they are written to be sad. They are written to be very romantic and very sentimental. And they they are, and they uh, do remind me of my family and and my mother. And uh, there is a piece written that's called uh, "Every time I say goodbye, I cry a little." 
uh, a very sensitive piece of, of American music. And I play it often and I often have tears in my eyes because it brings me back to the people that I have lost and that I said goodbye to uh, many years ago and then I never saw again. So yeah, there is a lot of both romantic uh, uh, music filled with sadness and there is a lot of jazz that's, uh, that's quite happy and uh, that puts you into a totally different mood. Do you compose? I tried, uh, but I have not been successful. Um, I, I, I've tried. I, I did write a couple of pieces, but I don't think they were significant enough to be, um, you know, to be to be documented and to be published. There is a quote that is rather famous attributed to Elie Wiesel. Inmates were watching someone's life being taken from them. One inmate asks the other, where's God? And he says, there he is on the scaffold. It is very f difficult for me personally to accept quintessential evil. Do you stand firm on that? Were these evil people, was this a terrible nature in humanity? Was it a black spot on their souls and conscience? Or was there some sort of comprehension that humanity was warped? Um, it can, I think it can be warped uh, primarily by outside forces. Uh, I think the outside forces, when you, when you uh, brainwash uh, eight and nine-year-old children and convince them that uh, someone is subhuman and that they need to be destroyed, you know, those kids will believe you if you repeat it often enough. So I think what happened in Germany was that there was so much of a brain, there was so much of political uh, and racial brainwashing going on for years. From, you know, it started in the 1920s, believe it or not. It started in the, in the late 1920s uh, with Goebbels um, and other uh, people that promoted this this racism. So fig figure from 1930, uh, from 19, uh, yeah, from 1930 to 1940. Well, in not from 1925 to to 1940, you had you had a group of young people that were basically that grew up believing that. Uh, anyone that's a Jew needs to be destroyed. And I think that's a very dangerous um, segment of the, of, you know, very large segment of the, German, um, of the German population. And many of these people, many of these young kids eventually joined the SS. And they were convinced and they were brainwashed into believing that there is a whole group of Poles and Jews and gypsies and uh, people simply that were simply subhuman and then needed to be destroyed. Did you ever or see anyone have any type of interpersonal relationship with a guard? No, I never, I never developed a, a, a close relationship with any of the guards. Is that your question? I'm just wondering, uh, so many no. of, the, of the movies and books and films we see now are interspersing the inmate with the possible humanity of the guard. It's almost as if people are looking for some goodness to satisfy their own need to find it. I'm wondering well, if anyone yeah. treated you we nicely. Have two, we have two types of guards. We have two large segments of guards. One large segment of guards were guards that were... Um, uh, they were um, elderly. They were typically men in their 50s and even early 60s that we felt were not part of the Nazi uh, brainwash uh, uh, movement. They were too old to have been brainwashed and to have been uh, part of the Hitler Youth and so forth. Then we had the younger 
uh, these were typically in their 60s and, and, and late 50s and mid, mid to late 50s. Then we had the younger group of SS guards, which was a totally different group. These were, these had more of a supervisory responsibility and had much more power, obviously. And these were typically very dangerous because they were, um, by and large, uh, uh, brainwashed. Uh, they were in their teens and in their 20s when, uh, when Hitler took over. And they were brainwashed by the, um, by the uh, Nazi propaganda. And they were the ones that were extremely dangerous. What's interesting about it is that my mother, before she passed away, before she went uh, with my brother, uh, before they uh, uh, stepped into the trucks to be transported to the gas chambers, my mother actually wrote a note to my father, a goodbye note, telling him that uh, she knows what her destiny is and what John's destiny is. John was my brother and uh, saying goodbye to my father and telling my father in a very positive way uh, not to blame himself for what happened to our family, that it was not his fault, that it was our destiny, the fact that he could not get out, get the family out and immigrate um, out of Czechoslovakia in 1939. And she is wishing him all the best and all the best health and a good life. And she's telling him in the letter, in a note, uh, not to spoil me with his love too much and uh, to take good care of me and, and to have a happy and healthy life. And there is not a word of uh, uh, anger or any kind of resentment against the, against the Germans in that letter. And she gave this letter to a guard, and it was one of the older, I believe it was one, I have no doubt that it was one of the older guards that was too old to be in the military, to be fighting on the Russian front or the Western front, and basically was made into a concentration camp guard. I believe it was someone in his 50s or even early 60s, and he took this letter and actually gave it to my father the next day. And my father has kept his letter uh, till his death. And I got the letter after my father died in 1967. And I've had this letter in my possession till about four years ago. And I just gave it about three and a half years ago to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC. It is a significant artifact that shows the the mental attitude um, and 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 the and and the the, the the mood that a prisoner is in just prior to their death, and it is on display. It's a very important artifact at the museum. It's actually the only artifact that they have that shows uh, a person's attitude just before they die. Uh, that's written down on a piece of paper, and it is. I believe it's on the. It's on exhibit. I know that, but I'm. I think it's on the second floor of the museum, and it's. Uh, it's called the Vilma Grunwald letter, and most of the people there know where it is and what it's all about. It's an incredible story. There is a statement attributed, perhaps apocryphally to one of the victims of the genocide uh, in Burma by Paul Pott. One of the survivor's children said, I know there is a place where there is a long table and my loved one smiles surround it. Have you come from this incredible experience with a sense of eternity and spirituality, Frank? You mean, did I become more spiritual as, a, as the result of the experience? So much about the camp speaks to the word end, finished, finito. Did you come away from all of this and your life now feeling there is something beyond? 
not retribution, but reconciliation? Uh, <clears throat> hmm. uh, I think reconciliation is probably um, maybe the word. Um, you know, you you almost don't have, you know, you. The way I look at it, from my viewpoint or from my mental attitude, is you almost don't have much much of a choice. You're either going to be angry um, and and full of hatred. Uh, against what a segment of humanity has done to you and your family, or you are going to reconcile what happened and uh, uh, try to somehow rationalize it with um, with this overwhelming overwhelming political uh, the overwhelming political issues that were at play. Uh, supported by uh, a whole bunch of a whole battery of forces like the brainwashing and and the hatred and uh, and the anti-semitic um, uh, uh, movement which was of course already in Europe prior to the Nazis taking over uh, most of Europe I mean anti-semitism was already there it was it was uh, it was generic throughout throughout Europe. So you either rationalize it and come to terms with it and accept it as something that happened, or you become extremely uh, upset and belligerent and angry. And I think that living an angry life would be uh, would be suicidal. I would not want to be living a, an angry life. So I decided that I'm going to come to terms with the situation and accept it for what for what happened and how why it happened. There is the very famous Martin Niemöller quote of seeing things happening but ignoring them because they did not impact on his life and then suddenly realized when they did it was too late. Do you see in the world today a need for not waiting for it to be too late. Yes, but I also see uh, I also see a lot of lies and exaggerations being um, being um, published and printed by the mass media. I have never seen ever since I left communist um, Czechoslovakia in 1949. I my father and I escaped from from, com from communism, I have never seen um, mass media as um, as uh, one-sided and uh, irresponsible as they have become in this country. Here, I want to tell you something about mass media. I don't know whether you know this or not. Uh, the New York Times had firm information during the war this has been documented the new york times had firm information during the war after several of the prisoners escaped like verba and their reports were published about thousands of jews being hundreds of thousands of jews being gassed in uh, in auschwitz new york times had that information and they did not publish it because they did not want to appear to be Jewish, to be a Jewish newspaper. They, so they were also worried about anti-Semitism, obviously, because the New York Times had the information, but refused to publish it. And uh, there is probably no newspaper um, uh, more uh, uh, more um, uh, untruthful and one-sided today than some of the major newspapers like the New York Times, because they do not tell the truth. And I agree with Trump that, uh, that there is such a thing as fake news. They do not tell the truth. They try to, they basically, if, they, if there is something they don't want to talk about, they simply don't talk about it. They basically hide it. And this is what happened under the communist regime. This is what I lived through under communism. And I cannot believe that it's happening in this country 
to the extent that it is happening today. When you saw what happened at Charlotte, is there fear that those untoward events of the 30s are possible here? Uh, everything is possible. Um, we have a population in this country, luckily, that's, uh, that's so diverse, so mixed. Uh, that uh, I and 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 that I don't believe that a, a government or a group of people could ever get away with um, arresting uh, two or three million people and and killing them uh, in this day and age. So everything is possible, but I would say it's highly improbable that it would happen in this country. Has your social consciousness been translated into a political consciousness? No, I'm really not a political person. I am very, however, I'm very sensitive to to um, to what mass media, uh, how mass media's media are behaving, because I have seen what mass media have done in Germany. Um, I have seen it. In the movies and I've seen it in newspapers I've seen it in records uh, what happened through mass media radio and uh, mainly radio propaganda at that time of course there was no television in Germany in the 1930s but uh, through radio and film I have seen what Germany has accomplished uh, through mass media and I have seen what what Moscow and the and the um, socialist and communist countries have done during the uh, during the uh, 1940s and 1950s and 1960s in Europe, and um, so I'm very sensitive to to the lies and to the one-sided reporting that um, that mass media are capable of doing, and uh, and. Uh, I am basically, I'm an independent observer. I consider myself an independent observer. And I'll defend uh, anyone, uh, regardless of their, uh, of their uh, political conviction. But I will also stand by, uh, by universally fair reporting by the mass media. I will absolutely try to uh, destroy or fight anyone that continues to uh, report uh, uh, in a one-sided way rather than in an objective way. Do you feel that the American people today, as you view them, and that's a very generic term, it's stereotypical, but do you feel we've become inured to lying? Yeah, the American, the, 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 the American people, I think, I think the majority of the American people have seen, have witnessed just recently, and I don't want to get into really political details, but they have witnessed a, 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 a barrage of, of, of uh, one-sided criticism, uh, and it has gone so far that I think there is a large segment of the American population now that is mistrustful of the media, which I think is good. I think you need to mistrust the media and double check and triple check uh, the reports that they are giving out in order to keep them honest. We're within a minute of the end of what has been a, a rather extraordinary program, Frank. Wondering whether uh, we can invite you back at a later occasion and pursue the different angles of what you said. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share in those 60 seconds remaining? Thoughts for the listening audience. Uh, final thoughts would be double check your information. Don't necessarily trust the media. And don't jump into conclusions about, uh, don't generalize among people. Don't ever generalize uh, and accept that one group of people is this 
And another group of people, people, ethnic group is typically this, because people are genetically unique and different. Everybody's different. Uh, even identical twins tend to be different in their personality and their, their thoughts. So don't ever just take one group of people uh, en masse in a mass and say, I don't like these people because they are this or they belong to this group or they belong to that group or religious group or ethnic group because I feel like everyone is unique and everybody's got to be judged by their own uh, through their own performance and uh, through their own actions and not never be put into a group and never be generalized that's that's the only thing I can say I thank you Frank our special guest has been Mr. Frank Grunwald survivor a special human being with a memory. This has been Seldom Said. My name is Robert. <laughs>